Today's reading is taken from Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. Those of you who are just getting out your Bibles, I'll give you a, a moment. That's Colossians 1, verses 9 to 20. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Amen. I, I imagine if we sat round and discussed what's happening in Ukraine at the moment, all of us would feel the same, that Mr. Putin is the aggressor and this is a terrible situation and we'd want there to be peace in Ukraine and we'd want there to be freedom and, I suppose, victory for the Ukrainians. And I'm sure that absolutely convinced that is the right view. However, if we were gathering, say, in a Russian Orthodox church in Moscow today, we'd see things very, very differently, wouldn't we? We've got used to the idea of spin, or to quote Mr. Trump, fake news. How do we know what is fake news? How do we know what is correct and true? One of my recollections as a boy, and it's amazing, I suppose most of it has just faded, but I do remember my father getting up very early one morning to listen to the well, in those days, it was called the wireless, and I think the home service, so it really is aging me, because he wanted to know what was happening about Cuba, the Cuban, Cuban missile crisis. And again, I think if those of us who know about it, if we were talking, we'd say, yes, the Russians had missiles on the islands of Cuba. Kennedy put tremendous pressure on, the Russians backed down, and, um, and America won. And I think that would be the, you know, the received opinion of us all. And then I read this article, Khrushchev won, not Kennedy. 
I thought, oh, right, so what's happening here? And um, it, was, it was in the Telegraph, and it was concerning, yep, that incident all those years ago in 1962. And what it says is that um, uh, there'd been the Bay of, uh, Bay of Pigs fiasco, and um, Khrushchev apparently got in touch with Castro and said, now, if the Americans did invade Cuba, how long could you protect yourselves? And he said, two days, that's all. And so they devised a plan and they put missiles onto the Isle of Cuba. And of course, when these were spied by the, the Americans, they said, no, no, you've got to move them. And uh, Khrushchev negotiated and said, we will remove them as long as you promise never, never to invade Cuba. And Kennedy went along with that. But he went along with it, according to this article, so quickly that Khrushchev thought, oh, right, this is very easy. Let's go one step further. And you will never have Americans based in Turkey. And Kennedy agreed again. And so these fake missiles, apparently, were removed and Khrushchev won, not Kennedy. Fake news. How do you know what is true and how, what is not true? And, you know, we're, we're all bombarded with the media and uh, we, we usually imbibe their ideas. I suppose in some ways it doesn't matter too much when it talks about just, you know, modern events and uh, modern affairs, but what if it's to do with eternity? What if there's fake news concerning our eternal destiny? What if there's fake news about Jesus? And there was. In fact, there always has been, but there was right at the beginning. Uh, this little place called Colossae, not that many miles away from Ephesus, where the Apostle Paul had worked. And a church had been spawned, really, from Ephesus. But the Apostle Paul had never, never actually visited that church, never gone to Colossae. Of course, travel was difficult in those days. And yet he heard news about these early believers meeting together, loving the Lord, apparently, but also beginning to question, who is Jesus really? And having new ideas about what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. And what it means to be right with God. What do we have to believe? What do we have to do? And so Paul wrote this little letter, four wonderful chapters. And he's writing to correct what has become fake news about Jesus. He's, he's, he's writing to really say, look, let me explain clearly who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And let, 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 let me explain what it means to be right with God. And it's a lovely passage when, when we had it read so well a few moments ago. It's absolutely cram-packed with truth, isn't it? And you sort of want to look at every phrase step by step. But here is Paul earnestly contending for the truth with these people in Colossae. And I just want to speak for a few moments about what he said. And I want to speak to all of us. I don't know most of you. I suppose many of us have come to that time in our lives where we've trusted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. But maybe some haven't, and you're here, you're intrigued, you wonder what, what sort of a church is it that meets in the school and, and, and takes things of God so seriously. And I want to give the opportunity at the end for every one of us, if we've never truly trusted Christ, to pray and ask him to forgive and to come and live within us. But let's look and see. What is Paul saying? He says, look, Christians are part of an amazing deliverance. If you, if you have your Bibles open, or <laughs> I don't know how you read from a phone, but anyway, there we are. Uh, but if you have your Bibles open, look at verse 13. It, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. We have been rescued a Christian is somebody who's been rescued. I'm sure at some stage in our lives, most of us have seen some sort of rescue. 
I interviewed just a week or two ago down in, um, in Bath a, a guy who'd fallen off the cliff whilst fishing in, in South Wales on holiday, and he had been rescued. As it happens, the BBC were there filming it all as well, and uh, they spoke to him. Of course, they edited out every reference he made to Jesus, but that's the BBC. He's anathema to them, isn't he? But nevertheless, it was a dramatic rescue, and uh, we, we heard the accounts of it, and then how it was incredible, really, because he fell face downwards into the water, but there was another fisherman who saw him and managed to pull him out and turn him over and then the helicopter came. But a rescue is something powerful. And here, Paul is saying, a Christian is somebody who's been rescued. Rescued from the power of sin. Rescued from the penalty of sin. Rescued from the, the sort of weakness of our own selves. It's a wonderful thing, you know, when, when a person becomes a Christian. Because not only is their past forgiven, but God, by his Holy Spirit, comes to take control of us and give us the power to live for him. I live right in the heart of the Yorkshire Dales, and ever since being a little boy, I've always enjoyed tootling around on my bike. I'm not one of those who puts on lycras or anything, but I do hop on the bike and go to the shop and this sort of thing. And, um, so I, and I like to cycle a few miles each day, just try and keep fit, etc. But, you know, a few months ago, I was cycling up a steep hill, and two joggers overtook me. And I thought, oh, dear, this is so embarrassing. And so I've got an electric bike at long last. Oh, it is wonderful. Cycling along, and then you see this steep, and there's some very steep ones. And suddenly, you go into a low gear. It's almost as if a, a, a hand behind you starts pushing up, uh, pushing up the hill. It's lovely. Power-assisted cycling. But do you know a Christian has power-assisted living? Because rescued, yes, from all that would drag them down, but lifted up to be able to live for the Lord Jesus. I, I think sometimes we look at the commands in the Bible and think, oh, I could never live like that. Except there is the Lord to help us to walk with him day by day. So we've been, delivered, we've been rescued, but not only that, verse 14, we've been redeemed. We've been redeemed in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. When Jesus died on the cross, when his blood was shed, he was paying a price to buy back lost humanity. He was redeeming men and women. It's an amazing truth. There's an Old Testament picture of this. In, in the life of a man called Hosea, he was a prophet. We find his, his little book, well, 14 chapters, right at the end of the, the Old Testament. He was a bachelor. Until God spoke to him and said, now, Hosea, you're to marry and, and, yeah, she, she was named Goma. And he married Goma. And presumably for a while they were happily married. They had children. And then she walked out on him. And I want you to try and imagine what that, that was like for Hosea. He's a prophet. He's speaking about the holiness of God and the love of God. And, and his wife walks out on him. Well, what sort of a husband was he, people would have said. You say, well, was there another man? Well, the answer is, and it's all there in the Bible. The Bible's very honest. There were many other men. She became a prostitute. So he's a prophet and his wife, she's just on the streets in the red light area. And we don't know how many weeks or months or even years this went on for until eventually God spoke again and said, now, Hosea, I want you to go and find your wife. And you, you sort of read it between the lines a little bit, but you can imagine some of the places he went to. You know, have you seen Goma? And people would have whispered, oh, he's after a woman like that. But he, he follows the trail. Eventually, I imagine somebody says, if you want Goma, hurry. You'll find her. Get into the marketplace, but hurry. And he runs into this eastern marketplace where the, 
buying and selling and bargaining for everything, you know, fruit and veg and tools and animals and equipment and slaves and, and slaves. And he sees his wife about to be auctioned off now just as a slave. Can you imagine it? And he, he, he's in the crowd when the auctioneer comes and, you know, the bidding starts. Who'll give me anything for this specimen of humanity? And, and, and he bids some silver and somebody outbids him. So he bids some more, outbid again. So he throws in some barley and going to the man over there. For, and he buys back his wife. Now think about it. She was his anyway. She was his by right. He was hers by right. They were married. But now she's doubly his. He's paid a price to buy her back. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. We're his by right. He made us. He's given us life. And we've gone our own way. We've, we've pushed him to the edge of our lives, haven't we? We've ignored him so often, just done what we want to do. But the Lord Jesus Christ came to redeem, to redeem. I mustn't tell too many stories, but I don't know if you've ever read Uncle Tom's Cabin. It's a wonderful, wonderful book, and you, you do need big boxes of Kleenex tissues while you're reading it. And here's Tom, who's a godly man. He loves the Lord, and he's married with a family, but he's a slave in America. But his master was a good master, fell on hard times, and Tom had to be sold. He was sold, bought by a slave trader in Kentucky, and separated from his wife and his, his children and the heartbreak. It's very powerful indeed, and... And the master in Kentucky really abuses him. He treats him appallingly. But his first master just feels, I want to get back. And eventually, he, he, he saves up enough dollars to get to Kentucky and find and buy back Tom. And sure enough, he does. But by this time, Tom has been so abused, he's dying. But he gets to the, the owner and says, I want to buy back Tom. And oh, yeah, he's very happy to sell him. And he takes the dollars and he says, you'll find him in that outhouse. And he goes into this place where Tom is lying and he's dying. He's just on a bed of straw. Tom loved the Lord. And his master shook him and woke him and said, Tom, Tom, I've redeemed thee. I've redeemed thee. And Tom opens those big white eyes of his and says, Master, that's too late. I'm redeemed already. And he was, but not by dollars, but by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a great story. You ought to read it. But, but as a Christian says, yeah, I, 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 I've been rescued. I've been redeemed with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're bought not with silver and gold, but with the blood of Christ. And then thirdly, he says, this deliverance is not only that, we've been reconciled. Look at verse 20. And, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you get the idea again uh, uh, later on in that, that passage. We've been reconciled. When, when Jesus died on the cross, when he paid for our sin there, he was dying to remove the great barrier between God and us. God is so holy. And we, we're sinful. And our sins have separated between us and our God. But our sins were laid on Jesus that we might be reconciled to God. 
that we might have fellowship with. A Christian would say, I know God. He's real to me. I've been reconciled because that which cuts me off from him, Jesus has paid for. And then restored, verse 21. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now is reconciled in the body of his life through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his life. Can you imagine? You know what you're like. I know what I'm like. And does God say he'll present me what, holy and blameless and above reproach? How can that be? Because he died for my sin. And do you know, when a person trusts Jesus Christ, not only was my sin laid on Jesus 2,000 years ago, but he gives, God gives to me all the, the goodness, the righteousness, the credit of the Lord Jesus. My sin laid on Christ, his righteousness given to me. Wow, Paul says, I want you to understand there's an amazing deliverance when you become a believer. But then he, he sort of underlines this all the more because he says the amazing deliverance is all the greater because of the amazing deliverer. And he speaks about the Lord Jesus. First, verse 15, he is God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn. That doesn't mean the one born first. It means the one who's overall. The firstborn over all creation. So Jesus is God? I, I'd never sung that, um, that song about he has no birthday. I thought, what amazing words. I did think, what a useless tune, but we'll leave that. I thought, what amazing... Sorry. Oh, you didn't write it. No. And, uh, but uh, but uh, what, what great words. He has no birthday. He's eternal. And yet he was born. He did come into our world. It's an amazing thing. God clothing himself in humanity. God taking on himself flesh and bones and blood. He's God. Verse 17, driving it home. He is the eternal God and he is before all things and in him all things consist. All right, so he's eternal. I don't know whether you can talk about eternal past and eternal future, but you know what I mean. He is he's God himself who so loved the world that he came into our world to save us. And then verse 16, he's the creator God. Verse, verse 16, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether the thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. He spoke all things into being. <laughs> I speak and people fall asleep. God speaks and he creates everything. What power. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the reigning God. Verse 16. For by him all things were created. They're in heaven and on earth. Visible, invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Isn't that incredible? I, I have to be honest. Every day and, and perhaps several times a day I keep praying for Ukraine. I want God to intervene. He is on the throne. Why does he allow these things it's another big subject. Sometimes we have to say there are secret things that the Lord knows, the Lord only knows about, the things revealed. Uh, I, I can trust him for and then trust him for the things I don't understand. I would love, as it were, for a magic wand to come back over Ukraine. And, and I'm sure many of us can sort of put that in our own personal circumstances. If only, if, if, if God would, he is in control, he is reigning we can trust him. And then verse 18, he is the head of the church, the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning. So he's the one who, for those of us who are believers, he is our head. I have great respect, like I'm sure all of us here, for Her Majesty the Queen. 
And I try to have respect for the government. But I, my head is the, is the Lord himself. And I have total, total confidence and willing submission before him. I went into your book, well, I've been two or three times now, into the bookshop, David's, is it? In, in, in um, I forgot where I am, Leftwich. <laughs> I, I keep wanting to say Litchfield, but anyway, Leftwich. And, um, and all those books. Then you go upstairs, the second half, oh, and I got, I got a real bargain, I'm really chuffed about that. I was reading it at three o'clock this morning, so it must be a good one. And um, you think, all these words, all these books, all these millions of books that there are in the world, and certainly, you know, the British Library or whatever, what's happening? You've got 26 little letters, all jumbled in a different way, and printed and that makes all the literature that we've got. It's incredible, isn't it? Just 26 little letters, and it does all that? Yeah. And our Lord Jesus Christ, yes, man of history, scorned, sneered at, we, we know, crucified, rising from the dead, just him. Can he reconcile all things to himself? Can he forgive people? Can he bring us to know God? Can we enjoy him throughout all eternity? The answer is yes. He's sufficient. He's more than sufficient. And he is willing today to become your Lord and your Savior and your friend. And what does he ask? Not that you give him your money, not that you buy some books, not that you say, right from now on, I'm going to come to church regu regularly, from, I'm going to do my best. No, no, no. All he well, the only thing we give him actually is our sin and our lives. And we say, Lord, I just want to believe. I want to trust. I want you, please, to forgive me. Well, I don't know all that's gone on in the past, but Lord, just wash away all my sin. And then come by your Spirit to live within me. And may I just walk with you day by day through life. And then one day to meet you without fear on that judgment day, yes, because everything which would condemn me to hell has been dealt with. And I'll be welcomed by a loving Heavenly Father. Well, Paul seeks to correct them. And those are my thoughts on that passage. I just want to end. I don't know whether we've got the picture or not. We have. I want to end by telling you a story. And we'll see a picture in a minute. Vincent van Gogh. We've all heard of him, haven't we? I've been to the little town where he was born. I've been to the town where he was brought up. His father was... A pastor, a bit like Chris. Sure, not as good a singer, but anyway. And um, he was a godly man, was Vincent van Gogh's father. They uh, had a little Protestant church in a place called Zundert in the south of Holland, which is a very Roman Catholic area, but that's where they were. That little boy, and they called him Vincent. But he died. They had another child, so they called him Vincent again. And this is the one we all know. He, um, he was a loner. He used to walk around that area by himself hour after hour. But as we know, a brilliant, brilliant artist. In his early 20s, he came to London. He was trusting Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. He'd been born again by the Spirit of God. 
There was a great preacher in London in those days by the name of Charles Haddon Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in the Elephants and Castle. He used to get thousands to his church every Sunday, and Vincent van Gogh was there every Sunday. He loved listening to Spurgeon. He would have gone morning and evening, but he felt he had a responsibility to reach men and women with the gospel. So after hearing Spurgeon in the morning, in the evening, he went into the east end of London and he would preach the gospel in the open air. He felt that God was calling him to be an evangelist. So he went to Antwerp, which of course now is in Belgium, and he went to a college which was meant to train clergy, but unfortunately, like so many colleges, it just it poured criticism on the Bible and began to undermine some of his confident beliefs. He had a cousin, and uh, she was married, had a little child, but then she was widowed. She was a lovely girl, and Vincent van Gogh pursued her and said, would you marry me? And she said no, and he pursued her again, and again she refused, so much so that her uncle, uh, sorry, his uncle, her father, said to Vincent van Gogh, just leave her alone. Maybe he, maybe he should have left it longer, and, but there we are. And he was bitterly, bitterly hurt that he'd been refused. Gauguin, Paul Gauguin, the artist, grossly immoral man, befriended Vincent van Gogh. And he said, you come with me. And he took him to the brothels of Antwerp and Brussels. And it led him in a very different way in his life. Five years before van Gogh died, he painted a picture we're going to see on the screen. It's called An Open Bible a book and a candlestick. I don't know how clearly you can see. Have we got it or not yet? No, it's coming. Um, it's, it's there and hopefully it will show shortly. But the Bible is open. If you look at the top right, you can't quite see it yet, but it says Isaiah. And then look at the column on the right and it says 53. So the Bible was open. All right, we've got it. Isaiah 53 in Roman numerals. It's 53. But notice the Bible is a blur. The candlestick in the picture you never quite see, but if you see the original in, in Amsterdam, there's a whisper of smoke. It's just gone out. The light has gone out over the Bible. And instead there's this well-thumbed, well-used book. It was a banned erotic novel called La Joie de Vie, The Joy of Life. And Van Gogh is saying, you know, the light went out on the things of God. And they were replaced by that. It's very easy for that to happen. Maybe as a child you went to Sunday school. Maybe you taught the things of God at school. Maybe deep down you know that there is a way that leads to life and eternity with God. But there's another path that leads to death, destruction, to hell. And it's so easy to be lured from the right path to the wrong path. I would love to think that Van Gogh, before his life, and by the way, you know, they always say he cut off his ear. There's a lot of evidence that actually it was a brawl with Paul Gauguin and, and he cut off Van Gogh's ear, but there we are. But he took his own life, didn't he? I'd love to think he's in heaven. have to leave that with the Lord. But I wonder about you. Can I ask you? You know, I've been here a week. I'm going shortly. But can I just urge you to consider, where do you stand? I say it to myself, Roger, as well. Where do I stand before God? Has the light 
gone out on the things that really matter. Because everything else slips through our fingers, doesn't it? It's so vitally important that we get right with God. We have the most wonderful message, but it is the most urgent one as well. Today, the Bible says, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. And I would urge you to make sure you're not following fake news. You're not, I don't know, being lured by spin, but saying, right, I have an amazing deliverer, and he has purchased an amazing deliverance, and I want to trust him as my Lord and Savior. Shall we pray? I'm going to pray that prayer I've prayed night by night. If you haven't yet asked Jesus Christ to forgive you and live in your heart, then please pray this prayer with me. And if you feel as a Christian you've wandered away but want to come back, the way back is the way you came in the first place. You come to the cross. Make this prayer your prayer. Dear God, you know everything there is to know about me. I want to say I'm sorry for my sin and my wanderings. Please forgive me. Thank you that Jesus died for my sin. And thank you that he rose again from the dead. Please become my Lord and Savior. Become Lord of all in my life. And help me to follow you and walk with you day by day. For I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I will be at the door at the end, and I will have the booklet I've mentioned day by day, this one, Trusting Christ. If you've prayed with me this morning, it has the prayer or similar prayer in it and some tips about growing as Christians, which is the most exciting and wonderful journey. Uh, please just say, Roger, I need one of those booklets, or I prayed with you, and it'd be my pleasure to give you one. Thank you.